Yo, here we go again, and this show, a classic list to kick things off. The eight best cycling tips you'll ever hear. From Semi-Pro Cycling, this is Ride Better, Faster. I'm Damien Roos. Number one, training doesn't have to be complicated. I have been fortunate enough to have a sneak peek at some of the world's best riders' training programs, and the thing that surprised me the most was the simplicity. This is not to say that training is not well thought out, although some riders don't even have coaches or training plans. It's more that amateurs tend to complicate things to try and make up for the reduced hours they train. It's true that a professional is protected by the extra time on the bike and their demanding race schedules mean detailed training plans are hard to adhere to, but their training tends to have less moving parts and is trying to achieve no more than one or two things in each training phase. And while there are adjustments that someone without 20 plus hours a week of training time can make, it can still be simple. The trap we can fall into is that the more complex you make something, the easier it is to get excited about, but this makes it harder to stick with it over the long haul. Not that making your training simple means that it will be easy, just that taking something like Steven Seiler's intensity discipline, which is taking a training ride and sticking to one prescribed intensity zone for the entire three, four, five hours of that ride, The basics are hard, and the basics done right are even harder. So focusing on less in a training ride or in a training phase gives you the mental space to meet the demands of the basics done right and does not allow you to hide in the excuses that complex training allows you. Number two, plan your ride the night before. This is a reminder more than anything. Stop wasting your ride time with low-impact, high-effort tasks, a.k.a. thankless tasks. We all know them. Updating bike computers, cleaning sunglasses, trying to find your f***ing arm warmers. These things have to get done at one time or another, but I want to gently remind you to get it done the night before you ride. That way you can leave your house ready to ride and get maximum time on the bike. You can take this to the extreme if you work backwards from when you would leave your door. You fill your drink bottles, pump up your tires, charge any drive chain, computer batteries, lights, fill your jersey pockets, lay out all of your clothes, sleep in your kit if you're getting up in the middle of the winter. No, not really, although Yes, I have done it. Fill your cereal bowl, put toast in the toaster, grind your coffee. Sorry in advance for all those coffee people. Whatever you need to get done to get it sorted the night before. And hey, it's the closest thing that you're ever going to be to a pro at a grand tour. Number three, perform some efforts at the beginning of a ride and others at the end of a ride. Not specifically in the same ride and without getting into the details of every type of interval, pretty much... Every type of interval can be performed fresh or fatigued. And depending on the training phase and the adaption that you're looking for, you're either trying to increase your power or extend your power. This is really a lesson in not being afraid to play around with where you place your efforts. Just be clear in what you're trying to achieve by doing so. If you want to push your power curve up, keep them at the start. If you want to push your power curve out, place them at the end of a session. 
If you do place them at the end of a session, maintain a consistent prescription across weeks for comparison's sake. You can do this by setting a starting point based on writing a set amount of kilojoules first, or simply using time and putting them in a similar type of ride. It might also be helpful to keep a chart available that shows you your power after a set amount of kilojoules, so you can see any increases if you're not actually nudging your normal power curve. Thinking that you should never miss a training session. It's important to remember that it's cool to take a day off the bike or miss a workout if life gets in the way. The trick here is to move on and go easy on yourself. A day or two missed in the short term is far better than running yourself into the ground and missing a week because you wound up sick. On the other side of this is doing more than your coach prescribed you. Coaches may hate me for saying this, but sometimes going above what your coach has planned is a good thing. And here's a brief explanation on why. The coach-athlete relationship is at its best when a coach is as close to the athlete as possible. And this sits on a spectrum of living together, seeing each other every day on and off the bike. You know everything that's going on. And the other side is living, say, on the other side of the world, never meeting and only seeing the athlete's data, no notes or anything like that. And the further you get away from the living together side of the spectrum, the more an athlete has to rely on their own interpretation of their body signals. In other words, you have to learn when to go harder and when to back off based on what your body and life circumstances are telling you. So in the same way that it's okay to take a day off, it's okay to push a little harder or a little longer. A good coach will pick up on this and work with it rather than trying to control this too much because generally speaking, a coach's job is more likely to tell a motivated rider when to rest than when to go hard. Number five, too much intensity. In the early days of my coaching career, I prescribed too much intensity. I was wrong in my thinking that the more an athlete could handle, the more I should throw at them. And chasing intensity at a high volume does not lead to good things in the long run. So why the change of mind? Well, I learned that improvement is more than chasing a high CTL and that to adapt to training, more rest is sometimes better. So what does that look like now? Three days a week of focused efforts, max. This can sometimes be back-to-back -back days, but most likely less intensity on the days between efforts. And this helps the adaption process and gives athletes every chance to hit their numbers on hard days. Number six, work on confidence. Not having the confidence to put yourself in challenging situations is the biggest cycling racing career killer I've seen. In other words, confidence is the gateway to peak performance. Performance relies on your confidence. So if your confidence is not where it's at or where it needs to be for you to perform, your performance will suffer, especially during a race. And I've seen two riders with the exact same numbers split from international performance to local performance based on their confidence alone. That was a huge lesson for me to witness. Hard to watch from the sidelines, but an important lesson nonetheless. The good news is that the local rider is now crushing national and international, but that's a separate story. Staying confident, even when you're not riding well, is another skill altogether. Because confidence is a state of mind that comes from knowing that you have the resources and abilities to be successful. Even if you get into trouble during the ride, you can call on your resources to get you through. 
So what about you? Where is your confidence and how can you work on it? If you think about the last race or ride where you pushed yourself into a new place, what was your confidence on that day before, during and after? Here are some made up levels to help you anchor them to. And the levels of confidence go from cocky, I'm going to crush everyone, to unwavering, let's do this, to quietly, I'll go all right, somewhat, I'll survive, a little, this is going to hurt, not at all, what am I doing here? So at your peak confidence, where do you sit in these levels? Can you say it was unwavering? If it is, then all you have to do is retrace your steps, look for patterns and repeat the steps. If you can't definitely say your confidence was unwavering, then it makes it a little harder to retrace. But the good news is that there is room to improve here. And I'd put some focus on improving the part of confidence that's based on the belief that if you don't have the resources you need to succeed, that you can develop them along with the abilities needed to reach your goals. Confidence overrides doubt to create a deep and resilient belief in your ability to ride at your best. I think of this as an unwavering belief in your ability to do what you want. And closely related to confidence is the idea that psychologist Albert Bandura from Stanford University defined in self-efficacy, which he stated as your belief that you can achieve your goals. And self-efficacy was taken a step further by Weinberg and Gould and expanded to identify nine sources of self-confidence specific to sport. Number one, mastery, developing and improving skills in training and competition. Number two, demonstrating ability, having success in competition. Number three, getting the breaks, seeing things going your way. Number four, seeing others perform successfully. Five, physical and mental preparation. Six, social support, encouragement from family and friends. Seven, belief, trust in your coaches. Eight, body image, feelings about body, strength, appearance, weight. And nine, environmental comfort, feeling comfortable where you're performing. If you break down that list, there's a lot of things there. But if you look at these a little further, you can see that you're probably already doing most of these implicitly. You just have to firm these up. You have to look for the gaps and then work on those ones. And that will bit by bit build your confidence. So not only in a big race situation, but when you're looking to do a breakthrough performance or you're looking to stay on a bunch that you've never stayed with or attack where you normally wouldn't attack, it gives you an opportunity to practice these things so you can build the confidence for when you really, really need it. Number seven, the biggest race mistake is not stacking the odds in your favor. Launching off the front of a race in the early stages is not smart. And we've done it. We've all done it. Did you win? I didn't. Did you? Probably not. Probably. Who knows? Some people do get away with it. But attacking and dropping the bunch in the first 10 kilometers of a race is somewhat easy, but holding them off is another story. I was able to make the separation, even stay away for 20Ks, but eventually got caught, then dropped on the decisive climb, only to grovel home. What's the alternative? It's not sitting in all day, I'll tell you that. And it's not sitting in all day and hoping for the best when the split happens. It's about making calculated moves to stack the odds in your favor. Road racing is about patience, but it's also about whittling down a field and then jumping when you can maximize your specific power strengths. And this play has three parts. First, you have to reduce the pack filler, the rider that you aren't. You have to make it hard. You don't want to go into the red. Maybe you want to put it in the gutter so that everybody else has to work the same. But don't try and ride away. Just let the others fall off the back. That's going to be your first move. Next, you've got to make a move to get another reduced pack. 
So sometimes you need to go away with people if you're not going to be able to do it on your own. So you need to get some support from the bunch, whether that's teammates, frenemies, anybody that can help you get a separation and keep it going. And this move is there to set up your final move. So in the second move, you're setting up for how you're going to win. If you're going to sprint, you're going to try and do soft turns. If you're going for a long range bomb, you're going to recover and go again. Everything you do in this move is preparing yourself for the final move. And here's your final move. If you know what your best power is, you have to just time it along with that. So is it a long sprint, a pursuit effort, or even something longer than that? Knowing where the cutoff is for you to be able to execute this on a course is really important. And everything you've done up to this point has set you up so you can go at that place on the course to give yourself the best chance possible. Easy, right? And number eight, the final one, learn to stay focused through awareness. Huh? Let me start with a tool called the Focus Checklist. I've brought this up before in another episode, but it's so good, I had to bring it back. And it's a much, much more positive and refined hangout spot than the pain cave or the hurt box. You're aware of what's going on to your body and around you. But we're going to focus on what's actually happening to you while you're on the bike. And there is a number of different items you can put onto your focus checklist. But before we get into the details, the focus checklist is something you can use at varying times on the bike. It's even more effective during heavy intervals than possibly even during races. So when you're training on climbs, do an initial check after your warm-up, during the ride, and after see what you feel like. When you're racing on climbs, there are many more variables happening around you. So it's a more of a check-in system when things are calm or steady and you're in the middle of a race. So this leaves you focused on the competition when you need to be. You don't want to be doing this check-in and somebody goes up the road. Yeah. Okay. So in order to use this, you probably have to use it a lot to remember it. It's a big list. It's a very long list, but you will get there. Just remember you are working from the feet up. So here's the checklist. Number one, feet. Is the pedaling form correct? Pressure throughout the entire stroke, maximizing the downward stroke, lifting the heel and gliding across the top of the stroke. Number two, knees. Straight up and down, no weird sideways movement or wobbles. Number three, saddle. Sitting back on the saddle to activate the glutes. Core and back and breathing from the stomach up. Engaging abs, neutral spine and breathing through the belly. Think again from the bottom up to stabilize hips with a flat back. No rocking or bouncing. Hands and elbows, loose grip, either on the tops, thumbs on the bars, or on the hoods. Elbows tucked in, away from the body, but not bearing the weight of the body. Shoulders, head and neck, relax, drop the shoulders, droopy, blubber face. Jaw closed, but relaxed, not clenched. Eyes up, but not too far ahead. That's the list. It may seem like a lot to remember. Maybe you need to put the list on your stem. Just remember, though, suffering is different than focusing on an effort needed to climb well. You can suffer through it, but that does not necessarily mean that you're riding your bike correctly and maximizing your performance at the time. So this list is a way to keep awareness and keep you focused on your performance so you can get the best out of yourself. It's time for The Chaser, the segment of the show where I talk about something that's probably unreleased, untested, or has nothing to do with cycling at all. And this time I came across something called Levels, a real-time blood glucose monitor. So Levels tracks your blood glucose in real time 
And they say, so you can maximize your diet and exercise. And it has this thing called zone scores, which shows your body's reaction to food and exercise. So you can tune your diet to optimizing your health. So you eat something, you see if it makes you spike, and then you can adjust it afterwards. You get a sensor, a 28-day sensor. So it's a patch with a needle that you put in. The needle's not so big. I don't think it's too scary. And you leave it there for 28 days. And on your phone you see what happens. You see what happens after you eat, at any time during the day, after exercise. And I think that's where it really gets interesting for cyclists. Fueling for rides. Are you fueling correctly? With levels, it'll make it easier to understand your body's glucose levels before, during, and after a workout. So in theory, you can personalize your fueling strategy. By learning how your body reacts to the fuel that you actually use, it is a very valuable tool for checking during a ride if you're trying to maximize your carb intake you know we're talking the top range here 80 90 grams of carbs per hour what that's doing to your body if you're using it what numbers you're hitting if your glucose is depleting a lot if you can't handle it it kind of gives you a bit of a benchmark to work from as well as how that fuel the specific fuel you're putting in how that turns into glucose, how quickly it does that. And so you can get a bit of an idea what's happening in your body. Really, this is more of a confirmation of what's happening rather than a real game changer. But there could be outliers here that get uncovered. So that's partly where I'm interested in this as well. I will say this stuff is not unique and was actually used by Sky Christofferson and the US track pursuit team leading up to the 2016 Olympic Games. But Levels looks like a cleaner solution for glucose monitoring. And that's why it caught my attention and it made it into the chaser. But that's it. That's all I got. Ride Better, Faster is written and hosted and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. 